This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Wendy's Breakfast, Carson. Big announcement from our friends up in Columbus this week. Yeah, yeah. Last couple of days here, they made the announcement Wendy's is getting into the ring when it comes to breakfast. They've already been there kind of, sort of, in the past, but they are they went back and kind of reconnoitered and refixed, and they have rolled the new uh, Rolls Royce out yeah, of the garage. Yeah, they are, they are not playing around. So March 2nd, they officially launch. Uh, we know where you will be. Yeah, I'm going to be in line. The, uh, the menu, Coley, is pretty interesting. Um, my, my favorite, right, is a frosty-flavored hot coffee and iced coffee. There's no way that's not, that's just, not phenomenal. Just take my money, yeah. I mean, the menu item that immediately draws draws the eye. I know where you're going. Is the uh, the Baconator breakfast Oh, sandwich. my goodness. Yeah. With, with grilled sausage. Grilled mm. sausage. Let me tell you about it. Mm. I got to tell you, though, I'm going to work over a couple items on this menu. The sausage, egg, and Swiss oh. croissant. Also, that is the uh, the highfalutin end of the menu there. But uh, man, it's looking good. So we may have to dig into this, guys. Yeah, we got a, we got a couple of weeks here. Be certain that we will be testing. Taste we testing. will be taste testing Wendy's breakfast and maybe other breakfasts, and maybe get into a little 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 if, breakfast. If there's a breakfast war brewing. We can uh, we can handle it. All right, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We- and we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, there is legislation pending in both Rhode Island and California regarding third-party delivery that would place new requirements on delivery platforms to protect operators. Dale Venturini, the president and CEO of the Rhode Island Hospitality Association, and Sarah Bradko, the association's vice president and general counsel, dropped by the pod to talk about their bill and how the issue is affecting the industry both in Rhode Island and elsewhere. And the SEIU is ratcheting up their corporate campaign in New York City against Chipotle. We'll discuss why companies with operations in the city need to pay close attention. And the Democratic primary continues to surprise the pundits, and we'll update you on the events of the week, forecast next week, and discuss why it matters to operators. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Franklin, another, another busy week, a lot going on out there in the big world. The big yes, restaurant indeed. world. Um, one of the things that caught our eye right at the top of the batting order was an issue in California uh, regarding third-party delivery and a well-known chef kind of yeah, raising there, awareness that uh, there was a bunch of press and yeah. it and it went national. I, I think maybe the New York Times picked it up, but regardless, it jumped from a little tiny story in California into a big national story, partly because it was a celebrity chef that was elevating the issue. And what she was saying is, you know, she has a kind of boutique restaurant, you know, high-end restaurant, and these delivery companies were, that she has no agreement with at all, is advertising her restaurant and going and purchasing and picking up food and delivering it. And it is hurting the the quality, you know, it's coming cold or whatever, and that's obviously impacting her brand. And so, she started elevating this issue in the press, and it, it kind of caught hold. And then we said, "Hey, we need to do. We need to call her and and have a an interview in that because there's some potential public policy implications here that legislators and lawmakers, policymakers need to be looking at." Then, lo and behold, lo and behold, you know, not but a couple days later, here we see this development arise in uh, Rhode Island, where in fact. The state legislature is looking very seriously at stepping into this this area and uh, and legislating. And so, and I said, I have a great idea. I know somebody in Rhode Island. 
I know a big VIP in Rhode Island, and maybe we can get her to come on the podcast and talk about what's going on in Rhode Island with regard to third-party delivery. So we invited uh, a legend in the industry, Dale Venturini, the head of the Rhode Island Hospitality and Tourism Association. I know I've already gotten that wrong, Dale. Rhode Island Hospitality Association. On a personal aside, when I started at Darden in 1995, my boss at the time was a guy named Rick Walsh. And Rick gave me a, a small list of people. And he said, watch these people, listen and learn. And among those five or six people on that list was Dale Venturini. And now here we are in 2020, and we're about to get on a podcast and continue listening and learning. And so joining us is Dale Venturini, uh, the head of the Rhode Island Hospitality Association. And with her is her vice president of advocacy and general counsel, Sarah Bradko. Dale, thank you and Sarah for joining the pod. And what are you doing up there with regard to third-party delivery? Well, you know, I've been at this a long time, and it's first let me tell you what a pleasure it is to talk to you. I always enjoy working with you. You always keep us ahead of the curve, uh, both you and Franklin and your company, so thank you. You know, when when someone calls you a small operator, a, a young man who's a wife and a child and has a very small, unique restaurant that all they do is burgers, and they do the most unique burgers. And, Joe, you know a little about Rhode Island, how small it is, but we're really bad about wanting to travel very far for anything. We all travel 45 minutes to go to this restaurant because the burgers are so unique. But they don't travel well, and the fries don't travel well. And he called us one day so upset, and it was very emotional, saying, my customers are mad at me, and I have no control of it. And when he told us why, it was because he was on a third-party delivery site, and people were delivering his food without his knowledge. So the food wasn't prepared in such a way to have that um, type of delay. Uh, for the delivery, and um, it was very, very emotional for him and, and felt that you spoke earlier about brand. Brand was the issue here. They were taking his brand and ruining it and his viewpoint. That was two and a half years ago. We started digging a little bit more and then realized that the floodgates were opening up, and we started hearing it. And now, as we track the calls that come into our office, this is the number one call from our members. They're frustrated. They don't know what to do. The second part about it is, the you know, that's a small, tiny restaurant. He has about 30 seats, very small, like I said. We have another restaurant that seats over 700 people, 700 seats, longest-serving restaurant in the state, uh, single, single owner. And they were in a situation where people were coming to pick up food, large orders, $60 to $100 even more, and person would come in to pick up the order, sir, that, that order is whatever the amount of money, and the person said, I don't have that kind of money, and walked out. And then we found out it was a delivery service that had used a different menu, an older menu, and the person just left the order there. So that food had to be disposed of. So it goes the spectrum from the small to the large. There's no one that is um, being left out here. So we talked to a few of our legislators and put in, put in a bill, and Sarah will speak to the bill. And the hearing was amazing. And um, I want Sarah to talk more about that. But once we put in that bill, the news media picked up on it immediately and now have a great interest in it, as well as some legislators calling me personally saying, thank you for this. I did not have any idea. That's my favorite restaurant. I don't want them to be hurt by this. So let me turn it over to Sarah. She's been with us five years as our general counsel and governmental affairs vice president, and she's been taking the lead on this, and it's been very, very active. We've been very, very active. As Dale mentioned, this has become one of the most common 
frustrations that we're hearing from our members. And really at the heart of it, I think there's just such frustration that there is this tech company out in California that is profiting off of the hard work and individual ideas and concepts that these small individual businesses here in Rhode Island are coming up with. Um, and, you know, we're a little bit different in that the majority of our restaurants here are small, they're independently owned, and they feel powerless to kind of fight back against these big companies out in California. The way that these companies are operating is they go into a new area, they'll come into, let's say, Providence here, and they'll put up all of the restaurants that they know that consumers want to be able to go to. We have a great food scene here. They'll put them up on their websites. They'll take their name, their logo, sometimes pictures from the website, and they'll put them up on their third-party delivery system without ever talking to the restaurant. The restaurant will either find out when they kind of Google their own name and see that they're on this website, or they start getting a lot of phone calls for delivery that they are for pickup that they wouldn't have normally gotten. The way that the third-party companies will kind of frame it is, well, you can just request to be taken off. But aside from the idea that you shouldn't have to ask to have a third-party company not kind of use your own name and use your product without your permission, it generally takes three to five requests to actually be taken off of that website. So our legislation, we try to make it as simple simple as possible to really get to the heart of what this issue is. Don't put a restaurant up on a third-party delivery system until you have a written agreement with that restaurant to do so. There are certainly trademark issues, there's concerns about brand quality, but there's also a growing concern about the liability and what that might mean for the restaurant. The way that these companies are designed to operate is after they have a a restaurant up on their website without their permission, they transfer that customer base onto their platform. And once customers are on a certain platform, they don't like to leave. That third-party company then goes to the restaurant and says, hey, we now have 10% of your customer base. Sign this contract that gives us a 30% cut of every delivery that we do And by the way, you own all of the liability for anything that might happen. The restaurants almost feel forced into signing these contracts, and we're really just starting to see the the concerns about liability from what happens if there's a food safety issue. Our restaurants here have to follow the Rhode Island food code. These third-party delivery drivers are just random people who decide to deliver food. They don't have any food safety training. What happens if they get into a car accident? What does that mean from the restaurant's perspective in terms of liability? We're very much in kind of a new world of trying to figure out what the impact of these contracts and these third-party deliveries companies mean. Sarah, excellent uh, recap. Tell me a little bit about the opposition and how they organize themselves and how they organize their arguments. Did did the, the carriers themselves, were they out front in the opposition? Did they hide behind independent delivery drivers, you know, as the as the face of it. How did they handle their, their pushback on this? I mean, not to speak for them, I think from their perspective, they had a few lobbyists up there at the hearing. And from their perspective, they believe that they're offering a partnership. This is what they said. They're offering a collaborative partnership between the third-party service and the, and the restaurant. Our pushback, and quite frankly, the pushback from the committee members who were hearing the testimony were, to have an actual partnership, you have to have two parties that have agreed to partner. And that's not what's happening here. You have an out-of-state tech company that's coming in and saying, we're partnering with you whether you like it or not. And that's where I think the disconnect is. I don't think 
their intent certainly is to harm the industry, but that's really what we're seeing as the end result. And they view their their customers are the people that are placing the order. Their concern is not necessarily with the impact on the restaurant industry and the areas that they're moving into. Joe, just like anything else, this is another disruptor, and there's no precedent setting for it, so we're developing as we go, and we're learning as we go. So we've been researching throughout the country. People have called us since our legislation went in and the hearing made the news asking us more and more about what we're doing with the hope that they may be able to do it as well. Our legislation is fairly simple. There were a lot of things people wanted us to put into the legislation. But we know, based on our experience, that you can't ask for everything all at once. Let's do baby steps and get some of the most important things passed, and then let's have the conversation uh, with, with these different companies. It's new, and we do need to know we need to develop new regulations and new ways of doing business, and we're willing to do that, but not at the expense of our members, particularly when I see some of my independents really get very emotional about this. You know, we've been saying for a long time on this podcast and just generally that, you know, the delivery space is a disruptor and is going to change and it's going to change the industry and it's going to have public policy considerations. And we don't even know what all those public policy considerations are yet. And I think we're just still starting to kind of figure those out. And clearly the platform's growth strategy as we've seen with other online marketplaces, whether it's Airbnb or Amazon or Uber, that it is market share, market share at all costs, and owning that customer relationship. And that is, that's going to create problems for these legacy brands and these existing restaurant companies that want to obviously maintain their customer relationships. So, you know, as you were putting this together and the component parts of the legislation, as I understand it, forcing uh, food delivery companies to register, putting some liability on them, and then ensuring that they have a partnership with the restaurants that they're advertising for. That seems all, as you said, pretty pretty simple and standard and a, and a great first step in, in the process here. When you look across the country, I know you are experts in Rhode Island, but I know there's legislation in California. I don't know to the extent that other states have gone into this space, but were there other states that you looked at or is there anyone else that's in this space that you kind of borrowed from or is it truly kind of so new and unique that you're really breaking new ground? We are certainly, I think, have taken on a leadership position on this. We were the first state to introduce legislation on this issue. I know California had theirs introduced. Um, a few days after ours came in. It's not a new issue across the country, but it is certainly a new piece of legislation. So we are taking that leadership role partially because we, um, as you know, Rhode Island's very small. We have more access to talking to our members one-on-one just because they're literally right around the corner. And our food scene here is such a treasure to the state and is so well regarded just because we have, I mean, I'm a little biased. We have the best food, I think, anywhere. And we have the partnership with Johnson & Wales here as well. So our food scene is such top of mind in this state. So I think that's why it makes so much sense for us to take that leadership position. Also, in November at the Council of State Restaurant Associations meeting, our governmental affairs meeting, I was um, on a panel for this very issue. And when we started bringing forward all of the issues, not just the ones we have outlined in our legislation, the actual panel went on longer than anticipated because there were some people that were being enlightened. They didn't, ha- they didn't realize to the depth and breadth. And there were others that added 
to our discussion. So I do know that the National Restaurant Association's governmental affairs team, Mike Watley, has been sending the legislation out to other members of the Council of State yeah. Restaurant Associations because they've asked for it, and they've asked us individually as well. So we've asked, you know, Mike has been the clearinghouse so that he knows where it's all going. So we're hoping, based on what we've seen, that this will um, go forward. Well, that that's music to our ears, Dale. As, you know, anyone who's been around our office knows we've been crying from the wilderness for a long time for the industry to get involved in these new economy, modern economy, future of work, all these kind of emerging issues. And, and this particular issue, the third-party delivery space has been dominated on the, by the retail side and they're in there the, the Walmarts and the Amazons of the world are driving so much of the policy around this space and there are a lot of implications for the restaurant industry and, and I've been uh, long advocating we've got to get around that table fast to protect ourselves and, and I'm thrilled that you are doing that and leading on this issue and showing your compatriots across the country the the path on this and this isn't just a one-off uh, you and Sarah will be working on these types of things going forward the next 5, 10, 15 years these types of issues are going to be the top of your issue bucket it's hard to imagine that this won't be the one of the hotter topics in you know most state capitals in in coming years and and related issues as well I mean you got to think this is going to be a large part of the issue portfolio looking forward so good for y'all for kind of leading the charge in this hey Dale one Dale and Sarah one last question before I let you go so you know in terms of the, the, the bill status now what do you need do you need brands to weigh in with you do you need grassroots assistance do you need anything or do you just need people to stand down well first of all I think it would be important um, to recognize we'd love people to weigh in. I just want to be cautious to say, we hear somebody say, well, it doesn't go far enough. I'm a believer that if in order to get something passed, we have to start small. We have to start with what's the most important part of any issue. So yes, I would love for people to weigh in. I would love for people to support this so that we can start and, and get this conversation going and uh, have people understand at the end of the day the investment that our restaurateurs have made in their facilities and sometimes at risk, particularly as this third-party delivery increases. So it's not only – and the chains are there as well, of course, because they have more brand knowledge and, and uh, more brand capacity. And I, I agree with Dale on that. I think um, certainly a grassroots support from restaurants is always helpful. This is more than any other issue that, you know, we, we deal with a ton of issues here, but this seems to be really the line in the sand when we talk to our members. So we need restaurants to speak up. Um, this is an issue that we're, as I said, we're taking a leadership position on, but it's really because of those direct conversations and stories that we've been having from hearing from our local restaurants. So if there are restaurants in other states encouraging them to speak to their state restaurant associations and ask that something be done, because this is we have never heard the level of frustration that we're hearing from our restaurants on this, I think, just because it violates such a basic principle of fairness. Joe, I'll leave you with this. And when it's a relation to whack-a-mole, when one comes up, one delivery company comes up and we work hard to get off that, their platform, another one pops up and it's, it's constant. And small business owners don't have the time to do this. So yes, whatever we can do to, to get something passed so that we can get this conversation going and then continue it. Well, kudos, kudos to you and, and Sarah for, for leading this charge. And um, I'd love to have you back on at some point to update the audience on how it's going 
uh, and what you're learning along the way because what you're, you're, you're cutting new ground, cu- cutting down brush for everybody, uh, and we're going to learn a lot watching what you're doing. And again, as my boss used to say, listen and learn. So Dale, really appreciate uh, you uh, and Sarah coming on the podcast. Really appreciate what you've been doing for this industry for over 30 years and I look forward to having you on again soon. I look forward to it, Joe. So Franklin, an issue area we find ourselves uh, visiting from time to time that we haven't talked about in a while is kind of what the SEIU is up to. And Has you know, it been a while? I think it's been a while. It seems like it's been a while. Okay. When's the last time we talked about the unions organizing a restaurant chain or a corporate campaign against a restaurant chain? Uh, a little big bird. So it was like six months ago? I think we've probably talked about it since then, but... It's been a while. It's been a... It's, a, it's never not a good time, so, you know... Well, there's no time like the present. No time like the present. So we've got a kind of traditional SEIU corporate campaign underway uh, right now against one of the more notable brands in the industry, Chipotle, focused in New York City. Franklin, tell us, give us the overview. What's going on in New York City uh, with Chipotle and the SEIU? First, I'm going to make the case why they shouldn't fast forward through this segment and why they should go Google this and look it up. You know, we often, these corporate campaigns, Walmart, McDonald's, they all have these corporate campaigns going on, but they're, they're always going on. Everybody is trying to take a piece out of Walmart or McDonald's or the other kind of big guys. Rarely do you see like a corporate campaign just start from zero and kind of scale up. And that's what we're watching with Chipotle. So we saw it was like six months, six, 12 months ago, we saw Chipotle get hit in New York City for the scheduling violations and paid leave violations and essentially the SEIU working with, I think it was a public advocate there, the whatever the labor department, the local labor department is, Human Rights Commission, whatever it was, go after Chipotle. And that was essentially the start of this corporate campaign. Now we have the first, and this is totally traditional corporate campaign right here. This is just, this is ABC's a corporate campaign. They've released a big report on Chipotle outlining all the things that are wrong with the company, which are all due to, you know, management issues. And they brought in all their- Or alleged or perceived. Correct. Yes. Right. Um, And they brought in all their third-party allies and validators. The usual suspects. Yeah. And actually, I I do want to just kind of run through those. But to justify this campaign, they're getting ready to light up Chipotle just relentlessly moving forward. This is all, of course, in the pursuit of unionizing these New York City locations. So, Franklin, why Chipotle? So, Chipotle, for one reason, this is a biggie, is all corporate-owned. Essentially, I think there's a couple legacy franchise locations, but 99.9% are corporate owned. So these 50 or so restaurants they're targeting in the New York City market are all corporate owned. That makes it a lot easier for them to kind of set and define the bargaining unit and go after and bargain with the corporate parent. The, the biggest, as we know, the biggest obstacle to organizing McDonald's and some of these other restaurants has been the franchise kind of model. So that's, that's the biggie. And clearly they have a foothold in these restaurants at least in New York City. And so going back to kind of the original conversation, the corporate campaign that is now gearing up, and I mean, this is, it's going to be a full-on assault. Here are the different players that are in the press release, the third-party validators. Center for Popular Democracy, that is kind of a think tank slash organizing group. That but is, a big-time think tank. It is basically a, a lot of the executives from ACORN went over to found Center for Popular Democracy. They have led the Fair Work Week 
national conversation. Which is the scheduling stuff. The scheduling stuff, which syncs with, they've been organizing these workers around scheduling in New York City. They've been organizing the testify and scheduling before it was passed in the legislation. So, you know, they are on the ground and they have deep roots in the, you know, their former Acorn organizers. They've, they've been doing this for decades. Food Chain Workers Alliance was started by the Restaurant Opportunity Center, obviously has deep roots in the restaurant world in New York City. Um, New York Committee for Occupational Safety and Health <laughs> and these guys have the ear. Not only is, are they active and organized, they have the ear of the local political elites. Oh, yeah. The, the, the city council. And I, I remember when, when Mayor de Blasio came into office, he had a bunch of rock and acorn and, and worker center people. He had a bunch of worker center people coming and staffing his administration. So these guys are not only active and organized, they're very politically connected within the city. National Employment Law Project, NELP, which is a big 100-pound gorilla, Make the Road New York, which funds and has funded for decades Rock and Center for Popular Democracy and Fast Food Forward and Communities for Change and all this stuff. So, and then the, the umbrella group that led this attack is the National Consumer League. Obviously, this is all being done by the SEIU local in New York City, which launched the Fast Food Forward campaign, which became the Fight for 15 campaign. And this is l- legit and organized. So if you go through the report itself, I'm just going to tick off a couple of the criticisms, and they back this all up with all their stats and figures and surveyed information. And, you know, fresh food model requires experienced and skilled workforce, ineffective inspections, New York health inspector data, pressure to understaff workers, leading to inability to follow best food safety practices, issues such as unpredictable scheduling, short hours, forced overtime, sexual harassment, from trailblazing fast casual to a reputation for foodborne illness, managerial pay bonus program incentivized cutting corners, insufficient sick leave and pressure to work sick, minimal training, lack of investment equipment. That's essentially the table of contents for the report. They're going to come after and they're really going to hit Chipotle where it kind of hurts in that their food will make you sick because their managers are treating workers badly and cutting corners and that's where it will hurt a brand, you know. And we've seen that in other industries, yeah. you know, as industries compete against each other. I remember the seafood wars about imported seafood. The, the, the accusation was that all the imported stuff is laced with chemicals and pesticides and will make you sick. And so we've seen the food safety used as a has been weaponized in another political fight. So I think you may have answered my first question I'm about to ask because you listed all the groups that are affiliated and how organized they are. Does this thing have legs? Do you, do you think this is for real? I, I think I think it does and I think it is. And I think Fight for 15, Fast Food Forward, SEIU, 32BJ was was planning on probably the launch of the Fight for 15 campaign, the unionization piece, the unions for all piece, targeting McDonald's and or Burger King and or, you know, the big kind of QSRs. But I think Chipotle may be the first domino that falls. So if you were Chipotle, what would you be doing? What are you doing right now if you're Chipotle? Uh, panicking. And then um, let me just say, too, I think within New York City, I think there's implications for a lot of other brands besides Chipotle. That was my next question. After yeah. what Chipotle should be doing, what should the other brands be doing? So, all right, well, I will, I will take them in succession then. So Chipotle first should be taking a, a page from Walmart and others and getting a handle on what's going on inside these New York City stores and then containing this within New York City and dealing with it. And it is not going to be easy but then dealing with it within that market. But you've got to uh, you've got to kind of prevent the the spread for lack of a better term. And it all starts with employee relations because 
you wouldn't be having this conversation, being drugged into this conversation about your food safety right now if it weren't due to an opening that the union sees in related to employee relations. So you got to go deal with that. And then you can we can talk about a public affairs campaign, getting your own third-party validators, blah, 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 that piece. But it's got to start in the store, and it's got to start in New York City. Yeah, and again, nobody's filed for a, a traditional union election. This is just the harassment part of this, the corporate campaign stuff here. This is to start shaking it out, and we're not we're not to counting votes yet, but this is the start of that campaign to get to there. But, you know, Chipotle, you know, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Walmart, you know. They, a, you've got to you've got to you know vigorously engage with your employees and set the record straight. You got to vigorously engage with electeds and the media and set the record. This straight. is you not go time, out there. This is not time to duck and cover. No, don't duck and go out and defend your brand and punch back and, and be to. aggressive and talk about what your culture is, what's good about your brand, and why this is. You, you cannot sit back. You've got to punch back hard because their calculus is that you're going to sit back and just kind of take it and try to ride it out. And that would be, I think, would be a, a poor approach. What happens if you're in another restaurant? If, if you're, you know, Red Lobster in Times Square, if you're, or you're if you're, if you're, if you're an operator and you look across the street and you see a Chipotle, you need to freak out because if SEIU has organized that Chipotle across the street, then they've been in your store too. And you probably have traded workers with some of these Chipotle's as well. So, and and this is this is obviously the SEIU's hope. They want to target metros and lock down metro areas. That's the only way the mass starts to really make sense for them unionizing the restaurant industry. And I think I think people need to you know just just put a put a book put a bookmark next to this thing going on in New York City with SEIU and, and Chipotle. Follow it, learn from it, and make sure that you know your your HR and ops teams are you know fully engaged in your operations in New York, and you know that this is happening down the street. And how are we doubling down our efforts inside the restaurant to have candid, open conversation, lines of communication with our employee and staff, and are really going the extra mile to put to bed any lingering issue, no matter how big or small it is, so that you're not next up on this. And I think it's a good learning for everybody else uh, to kind of, you know, double down their efforts and get ahead. But most importantly, pay attention to this, and we'll obviously be paying attention to it as it goes on as well. Well, Franklin, a little political update since our last podcast. We had a little uh, little fiesta up in New Hampshire for the Democrats and um, kind of very similar but inverted results from Iowa. Instead of Mayor Pete winning by a nose in Iowa, this time Bernie beat him by a nose in New Hampshire. Is it becoming a two-man race? It's a good question, Joseph. Thank you, Franklin. I don't know. You know, Super Tuesday is the big contest. Obviously, Bloomberg is ahead in some polls in Super Tuesday in some states. There's not a lot of polling in Super Tuesday states. In fact, there's not a lot of polling in Nevada and South Carolina, the next two states. There haven't been polls in like weeks, months there. So it's a big question mark as to what's going to happen here, like it's mattered what the polling said anyway. But um, but I think what we do have is we have Sanders emerging that he is going to go deep into this contest. We have Mayor Pete or Klobuchar, who... She's doing well. Yeah, yeah. We had a little Clomentum, a little Klobucharge in New Hampshire. Clomentum. Yeah. I like yeah. that. That's, that's solid. So all of a sudden, she has jumped into kind of the top three here. And then we have Bloomberg coming in. So obviously, Bloomberg, Klobuchar, and Mayor Pete are all kind of vying for the same lane to some degree. And Sanders is kind of on his own. So that bodes well for Sanders going deep into the process. That does not bode well for those three. Somebody's going to have to take control of that if they want to 
you know, give Sanders a run for his money. So with with Bernie looking um, viable, at least this early juncture, there has been in certain circles, parts of the Democratic Party, parts of the general electorate, and certainly parts of the business community that are all simultaneously undergoing a little bit of Bernie freakout. Mm-hmm. People are getting nervous. This thing mm-hmm. could be kind of real. And they should. They should. I saw that the uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, came out this week in an unusually harsh assessment and said basically that Bernie Sanders would be the worst thing that could happen to the American economy. And it's unusual for a corporate CEO to come out against a viable national candidate in such harsh terms, at least this early. I thought it was pretty interesting. But that is, to me, that's the the, the headline of the Bernie freakout. And we should we should also say that Biden is not out of the race. Um, the latest polling, Who? the latest polling had him up in Nevada and South Carolina, but there hasn't really been any polling since Iowa, New Hampshire. So you know, it's, we don't know how much that's worth. Um, he is planning on making his stand in uh, South Carolina, and he has been way up there, and he has a lot of African American support there, and. That's an important part of that electorate. So, but if New Hampshire and Iowa have taught us anything, it's not that the polls are completely worthless, but they're just shy of worthless because both those results in New Hampshire were surprises into a to a large extent. The Mayor Pete piece was certainly certainly a surprise. You know, I was up all night watching New Hampshire results. I can't wait. I'll be watching Nevada. I'll be watching South Carolina, and then obviously Super Tuesday. We will know a lot more come Super Tuesday. We say this, I have said this the past two cycles, that, oh, my gosh, we may go to a convention. I'm going to say it again. This We you know we could go to a convention, this go-around. I would love to see uh, a brokered, contested convention just because I'm a political nerd. I think it would be probably bad for the process in the country because it would look like inside baseball. I don't know if people would understand it. What the outcome is for the business community and all that, I don't really know. But what I can tell you is this process plays on. With Bloomberg Mayor Peter Klobuchar, the business world wants to probably see a consolidation of the vote there. Yeah. And, and make and a legitimate run against Sanders. Because if Sanders, if Sanders goes through the next couple of weeks and is still kind of either the or a front runner, you're going to see some uneasiness in markets, right? Because anything can happen in this volatile electorate, right? You're going to see uneasiness in markets. And what does that mean for restaurant companies or publicly traded companies? It means stock market gets a little nervous, stock market drops a little bit, consumers get a little nervous. So there's unease, I think, pending in the next couple of weeks if Sanders continues to appear to be strong and have momentum that people need to watch out for. So it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting time. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, uh, back to Vermont, a little activity that we kind of predicted on the minimum wage bill up there. Governor vetoed the minimum wage bill. They had lowered the amount from $15 an hour to $12.55 an hour to try to pull enough votes to have a veto-free majority. They did not secure that veto pre-majority in the lower chamber. In the upper chamber, uh, the Senate has, in fact, voted to override the governor's veto. So now we'll wait and see what happens in the House. Now, this thing was voted in seven votes short of a veto override majority. But as we saw in the, the paid leave which had a smaller, I think it was like four votes or something, It they basically almost overrode. It was one, one vote. vote. Yeah. So they flip votes is the bottom line in the paid leave issue. They'll probably flip some votes on this, but they'd have to flip seven, essentially eight here. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see what happens there, but it looks like it's probably dead for now, minimum wage 
in uh, Vermont. And sticking with the V's, uh, a lot of activity in Virginia this week as, as we've been tracking. Yeah, we have two different bills that have passed the House and the Senate, and they both go to $15 an hour, but uh, they have little different stipulations. The House bill keeps that federal tipped wage. The Senate version takes kind of a approach we've heard discussed a lot, and I, I guess we have some limited application of it. But it, it seems to be getting a lot more attention recently, and that's a regional minimum wage. Um, so the Senate version cuts out kind of northern Virginia and gives it a $15 an hour minimum wage. But then the other parts of Virginia, a more modest minimum wage and, and ties it to inflation. So, so there's um, some big differences. I mean, that's really very, not, not just numbers, but kind of the philosophical differences. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, someone's going to have to give a lot to work those those differences out in conference. And Virginia has a very short legislative session, so um, there won't be a lot of time to to hash out these these big differences. And one last uh, late-breaking item. Uh, last night, the Rhode Island House passed legislation to increase the state minimum wage to $11.50 an hour by October 1 of 2020, maintaining the current tip credit. You remember the Senate passed it previously. So now it's on to the governor, where she will definitely uh, sign that bill. At the municipal level, Franklin, Boulder, Colorado, home of the University of Colorado Buffaloes, our former colleague, Gray McGinnis, alum of that fine school. What's going on in Boulder? So they're talking about a minimum wage increase there. If you'll remember, we went through this with Denver. Minimum wage increases in the state can only be enacted on essentially January 1. So this would this is a ways off, right? But at least they're of being of the effective date. But they're debating whether or not to pass something now. And it seems like the conversation is pushing towards some sort of regional approach like we discussed in Virginia and like was discussed in New York and I think one of the Pacific Northwestern um, states. But this has not been a, a broadly accepted kind of policy. I, I would say save a few jurisdictions and then all of a sudden we've got discussed in a lot of different places. I, For my purposes, my own personal thoughts in this is this is kind of a way for policymakers to uh, to hedge a little bit and supporting a, a steep minimum wage increase. So we'll see if that um, catches fire and, and gets legs in Boulder. Uh, and just down the street from Colorado in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, a little interesting. This this happened last week, and we talked about it a little bit, but we got some clarity this week on exactly what happened with this the, the consulting firm that was brought in to assess what would be a proper minimum wage in the city of Flagstaff. The city buried a study that didn't come to the conclusions that they wanted. A study paid for by the city. Paid for by the city. And, and they didn't like the answer and they buried it. Basically, the consulting firm said, you shouldn't raise it higher than $13 an hour. There will be negative economic impacts. And uh, they went. the city ended up going to fifteen fifty. And so, you know, they didn't want that study out there. And they, they buried it. But the consulting firm is now cut loose and free to go talk to TV cameras, and they did just that. And uh, following up a uh, little activity on an issue we talked about last week in Hayward, California, uh, another step in that process. Yeah, another California city going to uh, $15 an hour ahead of the state schedule. It's just ridiculous. And, and their protocol, they have you know two, two hearings, two votes on issues, and they already proved it in the first hearing, but the second one is coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, February 25th, where they will more than likely uh, do exactly what they did the first time around and uh, hit that $15 an hour by July 1. Yeah, and they'll, they'll tie to CPI, uh, Consumer Price Index, thereafter. You know, you need to just check this along with the 18 other California cities to see how different it is. You just need to make sure your payroll is, is set up properly and accounts for this.
Franklin, switching to uh, presidential politics again, Tom Steyer made some news this week regarding minimum wage. Actually, the two billionaires on the Democrat side made news on, on minimum wage. Tom Steyer, for very different reasons, Tom Steyer made news because he is now supporting essentially a $22 an hour minimum wage. Alrighty then. $22. That's right. Now, remember, you know, it's crazy, right? It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Conversation keeps escalating. We're talking about Flagstaff escalating past. We're talking about Hayward escalating past. You know, and, and it wasn't too long ago, everybody thought 15 was crazy. So you put these markers out there that seem crazy, and all of a sudden, you know, within a couple years, the game kind of goes to that marker. And so it's... Crazy now. I'd be interested in four or five years to see what the minimum wage is and, and where they are. But uh, what, did, what did Bloomberg, how did Bloomberg make news? So the opposition research dumps on Bloomberg are starting right now. And every 12 hours, there's another negative story on Bloomberg to try to... The machine's cranking up. Yeah, they're trying to knock him down. Is He's gaining in national polls. He's jumped into third place in national polls, and uh, which translates to a lot of support in these Super Tuesday states. So he is coming in strong, and so everybody is dumping opposition research. And one of these stories that came out this week in a... I am in a talk with uh, the head of the IMF, and this was many years ago. Bloomberg basically said that minimum wages are stupid. Um, it's a stupid policy tool. And if you talk to most economists across the ideological spectrum, they will say something similar, maybe not that blunt, but they'll say that there's a lot, and that's essentially what he was saying, that there's a lot of other better tools like the tax, cut. tax credits, yeah, earned income tax credit versus minimum wages, you know, they're inflationary, all this other stuff. So the bottom line is, you know, Bloomberg has essentially owned the record saying that raising the minimum wage is a bad idea. And so we have no doubt that his opponents will make hay of this. They will be, they'll have a lot of things to choose from because a lot has been dumped in the past week. But they'll probably make hay of this, particularly in front of labor union, labor friendly audiences. And and this wasn't 2002 or 2010. This is 2018. We gave this talk with the IMF, so it's he's going to have some, as we say, and I love Lucy. He got some splaining to do here, so uh, to his to his uh, potential allies here in the labor community. Uh, Franklin switching gears, paid leave uh, back to the old Dominion state, Virginia. What we dead dead? Well, yeah, looks like it's going to be dead. You know, that was one of the things that you know we thought was not necessarily a slam dunk, but you know I would have bet money they would have come up with something in Virginia to get through the process. But um, after they do wage and do some other stuff, you know they're going to come back next year same political dynamics and, and go at it again. So I don't think that issue's dead in Virginia, just dead for now. Dead for now. Right to work, right to work is also, it appears, uh, dead for now. And there had been a, a watered down version that was uh, that was moving. But anyway, a lot of this stuff that was talked about is not making it over the finish line, which makes you think they have to kind of get minimum wage over the finish line. It's going to put a lot of pressure at them to, to get something done in minimum wage because they're, they're failing on a lot of these other priorities that they kind of promised their core constituencies that they were going to address. Uh, switching to uh, labor policy, Franklin, a really interesting bill in New Jersey uh, regarding portable benefits, an issue that we have been talking about for a long time on this podcast. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's been slowly moving through the process. There's a lot of issues that still have to be worked out. But the bottom line is it got advanced out of a Senate committee um, this last week. And a, this is really targeted at that uh kind of gig economy workers, and it would require that employers, that's how it's characterized, but because they're independent contractors, they're not really, anyway, whatever. They're not employers under the law, but they would be forced 
to put in contributions for these benefits on behalf of the workers, and those would be portable. So this is all very theoretical, and yet, yet again, a lot of the kinks have to still be worked out, but this bill is starting to move a little bit, so we will continue to watch it and report on it. This would be a first-of-its-kind deal. And uh, following up on something we reported last week in New York City, uh, with regard to the just cause firing legislation. Yeah, the bills were heard this week. And so, you know, they, they have now officially started the uh, the process. So here we go, buckle up. You know, the, the paid vacation bill was the last big kind of crazy bill that was targeted at the employer community. And this, the speaker essentially kind of backburnered or scuttled that. And so I think the play here is to go to leadership and try to get them to tap this down. But at least one of these bills already has a super majority of council members signed on as co-sponsors. It typically does not bode well. So It's hard to vote against a bill you're co-sponsoring. Yeah, so I mean, the best chance for victory here is that the bill just doesn't come up for a vote. And we'll see. There's going to be a lot of different pressures that and a lot of different things that kind of have to happen in order for leadership to decide they don't want to move this. So stay tuned. This will be an important one. This is another first of its kind bill, and uh, it will set a really bad precedent if it's enacted into law. And Franklin, switching to uh, a little bit of update in the scheduling world uh, in Connecticut and New Jersey. Yeah, in Connecticut, we're getting some noise that a Fair Work Week bill has been filed there. We typically don't talk about introductions, but you know, there's some conversation and potentially a little momentum behind this, so we want to keep an eye on it. Which and is the converse of New Jersey, where? It appears to be the opposite case in New Jersey. We thought this bill was going to move quickly, but it has uh, kind of been slowed down. And the Washington State one, I think we talked about maybe last week, has really slowed down and is kind of in the gutter right now, which is good news because we thought New Jersey and Washington would take off real real quick. So, so anyway, good news on Washington, New Jersey, and potential uh, you know yellow flag, uh, a caution on uh, Connecticut. And if you missed the uh, section at the top of the pod regarding uh, New Jersey, I mean, excuse me, Rhode Island, uh, third-party delivery legislation, Franklin, just give a quick update on that. Yeah, this is an issue that a lot of jurisdictions and um, restaurant companies are, are kind of struggling with, but the state's considering legislation that would require third-party delivery companies to register with the state and only transport food for which they have a contract with the restaurant prior to delivering the food. It would also kind of push liability down onto the delivery driver rather than the restaurant. Liability would follow a chain of custody. Yeah, and it would have kind of clear lines of distinction there where, yeah, there wouldn't be any legal issues that could kind of come back on the restaurant tour. And Franklin, in addition to Rhode Island, we got some activity in California as well. Yeah, we talked about it with Dale that uh, California has also jumped in the mix, and their legislation, it appears, is slightly different. It uh, has some of the same requirements, but it also requires delivery platforms to share information with restaurants, so customer information. So this obviously butts up against also the uh, digital privacy efforts in California, right, which is all related to the collection of, uh, of data, as well as AB5. California's been very active in this space, and I expect there, uh, there's going to be no holds barred to kind of charge down this path, and it will probably become somewhat of a model for other states. And lastly, Franklin, uh, looks like 
Congress or a couple of members of Congress are kind of getting involved in the uh, in the plastics world. Yeah, this is going nowhere, but you know we mentioned it because it's the first ever federal bill that would ban a bunch of single-use plastics, and specifically they're targeting takeout bags, utensils, foam, anything that can't be recycled or I guess is compostable would be banned by 2022. And then it would create a nationwide container deposit system. So 10 cents for every return beverage container. It's the old glass bottle, five cents. How Keith Offer used to buy his baseball cards every summer. <laughs> um, With a big old piece of chewing gum in there. Yeah. So it's going nowhere, but it shows where this conversation is going, that we have our first federal piece of legislation. Life cycle. On Life cycle of an issue. We talked about Biden, you know, a month ago or what, three weeks ago, whatever it was in the campaign trail, basically said, yeah, we need to get out of the single-use plastics business. So kind of amazing how quickly this, this conversation has escalated. All right. Well, that wraps up another scorecard of another week. And uh, uh, I'm sure we'll be back reporting next week on some fireworks in Virginia and probably have some more uh, insight into how that minimum wage bill is playing out and tackle that next week. Well, gentlemen, another week, another pod, and it's Valentine's Day, February 14th, and a lot of traditions on Valentine's Day. There's the flowers, maybe a little candy, a gift, and of course the Coley tradition on Valentine's Day. Franklin, what is the Coley Valentine's tradition? We've talked about it on this pod before and other Valentine's Day podcasts. What is it? My wife is so lucky. So, so lucky. <laughs> that you work long hours and travel a lot? Yes, And indeed. are away from home? And on top of that, when I am home, for Valentine's Day, I go pick her up a very special pepperoni heart-shaped pizza. That is that is our tradition. I th- I've done Domino's in the past, but I don't. I think they're only doing it in select markets. Just go around. I'm looking at Papa John's. They have a big special. The heart-shaped pizza thing has blown up, though. Do you, do they're, you, they're, they're you consider yourself kinds. an influencer in this space? There's like, no doubt. I was yeah. an early adopter and clearly was was in the front edge of this and helped push it out. There's Buca de Beppo and uh, a bunch of other restaurants are doing heart-shaped the vigor specials. Would you say Buca de Beppo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Y'all come on in. Join on the. Uh, do you join do you on, lose join any in the surface area on the pizza? Like, are you missing a slice? When they make you look of course, hard. Carson would go yeah, right there. Is a diminished yes, volume is what he cares yeah. about. You gain it back in love, Carson. And on that note, we'll see you next week. Oh.